everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Well, it's great to be here with all of you and also for those of you online this morning. I can't see your face, but you can see mine. And I don't know where where you're coming from, where where you're living. My friend Heather tells me that there are people in the continent of Africa as well who are joining in on on these services. So welcome, just come on in, make yourself comfortable. And um, I have a great message for you today, not just a message about grief and loss, a message about hope. So uh, before I begin, I just would like that we would bow our heads in prayer. Well, Father, you know everyone in this place. You know all the hurt that we carry with us. You know the sleepless nights, the fears, the doubts. You know the temptations that eat us alive until we finally just submit. And you know the guilt that we feel, the loss that we have experienced. We are so needy. Meet us now in this place. Open our ears to hear. Bring comfort to our hearts. And Father, forgive the one who teaches. Her sins are great. And may we see Jesus and only him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was the month of January 2009. And it was a cold winter's day. The sky was overcast. And it was chilly winds were blowing. And I had spent a good portion of the day at my dad's place, finishing up on a project. My Christmas present to him the month before was the gift of decorating his bedroom with a new coat of paint and giving the room a more masculine look. Masculine look. Well, my mom had passed away a, a couple of years earlier, and their bedroom had been suited more towards her liking and style. And now that, was, that, now that it was his own, it was uh, time for a change. So as I was finishing up, Dad was preparing himself for a 50th wedding anniversary event of close friends in the community. He was to be the MC that evening, and he was dressed to the nines in his black suit, a crisp white shirt, a bow tie. He looked amazing, and he was excited about the event, celebrating with all his friends. Well, I got all packed up and ready to go. He gave me a hug and a kiss on the cheek, and off I went. Well, little did I know, but that was the last time that I would see and talk to my dad on this side of heaven. Even like 2009, and I still get choked up about it. (laughs) Well, grief calls on all of us throughout our lives, and this unwelcome visitor did not knock. He just turned up on our front doorstep, bags in hand, and said, I'm intending to stay here for a little while. 
Well, when a loved one dies, grief moves in. It becomes part of your family. It sits at your dining room table. It attends your every family holiday. It influences your kid, and it wakes you up at 3 a.m. While grief is a word that I used interchangeably with bereavement, but grief is not exclusively about the physical death of a person. Grief doesn't just fit in a box either. Some forms forms of grief take years to work through. Other types take a few solid months, and some take a single moment of deep acknowledgement. Are you grieving a loss in your life right now? Maybe you just received a bad health report. Perhaps you got laid off from your job. Or you have financial pressures. Maybe you and your partner are having relationship problems. You have this tension happening in your life. A lot of people think that grief is only for funerals. There are literally thousands of losses in life. Perhaps you can personally relate to some of these losses: divorce, yours, your parents. Or your child's divorce, loss of good health, infertility, miscarriage, loss of a friendship, selling of your family childhood home, loss of a dream, loss of a loved one to mental illness, dementia or addiction, loss of a pet, loss of independence. Loss of your reputation or your energy. Have I struck a chord with you yet? Each one of us here has our own story of grief and loss. I know some of your stories. Not every story has a tidy before and after. I've sat with some of you as you've shared your tears and your pain, and some of your losses have been traumatic and heartbreaking. And I've been so privileged to walk alongside you in these sacred spaces. Grief has been a great teacher. So perhaps you're thinking, how is it possible that grief can be a teacher? Well, first off, grief can teach me how to how to search for God in my suffering. And while tears and sorrow are a part of our humanity. There's this often neglected prayer language in the Bible for our travels through this broken world, and that language would be lament. So, so what is lament? Well, biblical lament is not the same as crying. It's different, and it's uniquely Christian. The Bible is filled with this song of sorrow. Did you know that over a third of the Psalms are actually lament? There's a whole book on lamenting, the Book of Lamentations, where the writer weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem. And we also read where Jesus lamented in the final hours of his life. Lament is more than just the expression of sorrow or the venting of emotion. Lament is a form of prayer. Lament talks to God about pain, and it has a unique purpose. And that unique purpose is trust. 
It's a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, our frustrations, and our sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. The second thing that grief can teach me is how to invite God into my story. As we all know, this world is a noisy, busy place, and so, are, and so is our minds. And so when our thoughts race with too many concerns, we struggle to focus and to listen. And it's taken me more than half a lifetime, but I'm learning to be still physically, mentally, and emotionally. And it's been challenging, but it's also rewarding, and it's worth the effort. In Psalm 62, verse 1, Verse 5, I love this verse. It says, I'm standing in absolute stillness, silent before the one that I love, waiting as long as it is for him to rescue me. Well, the idea is for me to wait on God instead of allowing my thoughts and emotions to spiral out of control. And in my personal Bible study time, I'm reading the Bible as this conversation with God. As I read God's word, I need to ask the Holy Spirit to engage my mind, asking him to draw my attention to those things that he desires me to understand. And in so doing, I begin this conversation with God. And it's helpful for us to ask God questions, questions about our thoughts and our feelings and our struggles. We might ask God, is there anything that you want to show me about this situation? How can I look at this from your perspective? And when God speaks, he always agree, it always agrees with his word and his character. And as we learn more of God through regular quiet time and Bible study, we discern his voice more easily. And thirdly, grief can teach me how to wait patiently for God's timing and to trust in his plans and his purposes. Well, God's perfect timing does two things. First of all, it grows our faith as we're forced to wait and trust on God. And secondly, it makes certain that God gets the glory for pulling us through. In Psalm 41 to 3, I, David, waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me up from the slimy bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, giving me a firm place to stand. And he put a new song in my heart, a song of praise to our God. And many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Well, a personal testimony to this lesson on waiting and trusting came through Steve's and my experience of 13 years of infertility. I'll be honest with you. There were periods in those 13 years that were really painful. I can look back and see how my struggle to fully trust God had been much like a game of tug of war. At times, I would trust so easily, yet at other times, I'd seem to fight with all my might by trying to achieve on my own strength rather than trusting God. I found, however, that God is not interested in fighting a battle to persuade me to trust him. He's given me his word through the Bible to provide all the reasons to trust him. And then he waits patiently for me to respond. Sometimes I come quickly into agreement with his word, while other times I must learn the hard way. 
And in times when my own ability to trust falters, I've been encouraged by your testimonies about what God has done in your life. And in hindsight, I thank God for those watershed moments in my life that were hard. I can look back now at several events, be it my marriage, our finances, family matters, where the hand of God was protecting and providing. These memories continue to be great reminders of God's faithfulness to me when I'm walking through the experiences of grief and loss. I'm sure that if you take some time to reflect on your life, I'm sure that, I'm sure that you can see the hand of God and his provision and protection in those watershed moments. Well, sometimes I think that our worlds are too big and our exposure to tragedy goes beyond what our hearts can hold. And for some, there's this tendency to want to pull down the window shades, shut out the rest of the world, because we have enough to deal with in our own home. I mean, you watch the evening news, and you hear about home invasions, school shootings, refugees of war, the hungry, the disease, and all kinds of heart-wrenching stories of grief and loss, and we feel helpless. Maybe you long for the innocence of your youth. Some of us remember how simple life was before the internet and cell phones. It was a time when you seemed you could do something tangible to tend to those difficult situations around you. There's a lot of pain on this planet. And sometimes the only appropriate logical response to life is grief. And God doesn't simply expect you to grin and bear it or to stuff the emotions and put a smile on in the middle of all the storms of life. I want to share a few thoughts on what God has to say about grief. Well, first off, let's recognize that God doesn't expect us to be happy all the time. There's this myth within the Christian community that if you're solidly walking in your faith, then you should be happy all the time. Well, sometimes in the church, we give the impression that if we think your faith is strong enough, then you'll never have any reason to be sad. But the fact of the matter is, we need some time and space to be sad. And faith does not make us hurt less. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 4, there is a time for everything. There is a season for every activity under heaven. Life is a series of opposites. There is a time to weep, and there is a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn, and there is a time to dance. Well, the Bible says that I'm to mourn my losses and my disappointments, and it also says that I'm to mourn over my sins, to grieve over the suffering in the world, and to grieve over my friends who are spiritually lost. Well, the second thing that God wants to teach us about grief is that grief is essential to our health. Grief, grief is actually a normal, healthy response to a loss. And although grief is a painful emotion, it's also a healthy and helpful emotion. Grief is a gift from God. It's actually a tool that, gives, that God gives us to get through the transitions of life. 
Grief is expressed in many ways, and it can affect every part of your life. It affects your emotions, your thoughts, your behaviors, your beliefs, your physical health, your sense of self and identity, and your relationship with others. Grief can leave you feeling sad, angry, anxious, regretful, relieved, isolated, and so many, many other emotions. And sometimes there are unhealthy reactions to the losses of life. So let's turn our attention to the screen and watch this short video clip. Well, I guess maybe you're right. I am depressed. What up? Well, we're just trying to help you to get to, you know, the next stage. Stage of what? Fraser, I think you're dealing with the loss of your job, as many people do with a death. Only you've got yourself stalled in depression, and I think you're going to stay there until you let yourself grieve for everything you've lost. Your job, your friends, the money, your reputation. You've got to let it out, Fraser. Well, I thank you all very much for your concern, but you know what? If I was repressing anything, I would certainly know it. <laughs> The only thing I need to let out is so-called big and tall lounge pants. That went well. Yeah, well, we gave it a shot. What do we do now? Well, we can't push him. If he's not ready, he's not ready. What was that? Was that Fraser? If anyone's hungry, there's a freshly made Monte Cristo in the waffle press. Oh, great. Thanks, Fraser. <laughs> Dr. Crane, are you all right? Yes. Are you sure? I'm quite sure. Frazier, you're not famous anymore. <laughs> no, no, Dad, he needed a push. No, but look at him. This can't be good. Oh, it is good. Let it all out, Frazier. Let it all out. That's good. That's right, Frazier. Let it out. Okay. All right. <laughs> Well, I think a little humor can sometimes help us in our grief, but I think you get the message. Frazier so clearly demonstrated to us that there are two unhealthy reactions to the losses of life. One is repression and the other is suppression. Repression is when I unconsciously block a painful thought out of my mind. And suppression is when I consciously try to block a painful thought out of my mind. Both are denials. And when you go through a tough time and your heart is breaking, God doesn't want you to suppress it or repress it. God wants us to express it to someone with whom we feel comfortable and then to confess it to him. And when we do that, we're on the road to healing. It's important to t for us to take note of this, that if I don't let it out, I will act it out. Case in point. If I don't let it out in healthy ways, I'm going to act it out in unhealthy ways. Well, some of you were hurt many years ago growing up. Maybe your parents divorced. Maybe you were abused. 
Maybe someone's words hurt you deeply. But as a child, you didn't know how to grieve in a healthy way. So you stuffed down those feelings, and you've never grieved over that loss. Well, it's important that you go back and grieve over that loss in your life. Why? Because if you don't grieve over the losses of life, then you'll get stuck at that stage. You'll get stuck emotionally at that stage, and you spend the rest of your life reacting to something that happened a long time ago and taking it out on the people around you now. It's unhealthy to stuff it. If I don't talk it out, I will take it out. David talked about this in the Psalms. In Psalm 32, verse 3, David says, When I wept, when, sorry, when I kept things to myself, I felt weak deep inside me and I moaned all day long. Well, when you go through a loss in life, you may lose a job, your friend, your home, your marriage, a loved one. You can either mourn or moan. Moaning is negative. Mourn, mourn, Mourning is having this pity party. And mourning is positive. Mourning is calling out to God in your grief and in your pain. Well, perhaps the, perhaps the grief or loss in your life has been an experience of sheer randomness. And often from this random experience comes the question of why? If we had to experience suffering, we at least want to know the reason for it, right? Well, many of you who, many who have experienced this random suffering are troubled by it. There's typically an orderliness to life. And as human beings, we tend to impose order on the world. For example, through clocks, train schedules, traffic lights. However, order does not always prevail. For example, a family lives comfortably for 40 years in a rural Ontario town. Suddenly, a tornado blows through and destroys their home, but leaves every other house on the block untouched. Why us? They ask. Or a middle-aged woman eats a proper diet and exercises regularly for many years, but a lump on her neck prompts her to visit a doctor who tells her that she has cancer. Why me? She asks. Or a woman enjoys years of a career, marriage, and motherhood. She wonders why she was running through the park at just that time and why her assailant was waiting just at that place. All these examples raise the question of why. Why can be the most unhelpful word. The question why never seems to get us anywhere. It doesn't make the situation go away or change it to the way that we desire things to be. Why always disappoints. And when I finally give up on the question of why, I begin to ask what questions. Such as, what can I do in this unwanted situation? And sooner or later, the where question arises. God, where are you in all of this? Which in turn leads me to how. God, how are you inviting me to be in this? This process certainly doesn't happen overnight, and it often takes time. However, it is a way forward in times of loss. These questions remind me that God does the deep 
work of healing, restoration, and rebuilding trust. And my job is to try to pay attention. We're going to take a brief look from the uh, to a, the clip of the movie The Shack. How many here have ever watched that movie? So we have a few. And there, there's this character called Mac, whose perfect world has just been shattered when Missy, his youngest daughter, is abducted and killed during a family camping trip. And as the family grieves, Mac receives an anonymous letter telling him to go to the shack, the place where Missy may have been murdered. And Mac's invitation brings him face to face with these many manifestations of God, changing his life forever. So in the short clip from the movie, we witness Max's suffering. And God the Father appears to him as this homespun, middle-aged black woman who resembled a comforting friend from an earlier period of his life. Maybe there are one or two of us here who've had that exact conversation with God. I'm sure you would agree with me Sometimes grief and loss can be complicated and messy. In Psalm 42, Asaph says, My God, my rock, why have you rejected me? We see this tension in the Psalms. How can you say that God is your rock and your refuge and also accuse him of rejecting and forgetting? I think the psalmist is saying, I still trust and believe that you are who you say you are, but it's hard for me to see that right now. Honestly, it just doesn't feel like you are good. And perhaps that is what lament gives us space for, to say, this is who you say you are, and I'm desperately trying to put my trust in you. And sometimes it's difficult and it takes us time, time to reconcile the loss with who God says he is. Perhaps there's no reason that you could receive that would take away your pain, and I think that's okay. It's quite possible that what is happening in the Psalms of Lament is that the grievers are not asking questions to get specific reasons for their suffering. It's really a pursuit of reconciling with God himself. It's relational. Lament is like conflict resolution. The grievers saying, God, I just don't like the story you're writing right now. It really hurts, and it's going to be good in the end, but I don't really like it. However, I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to leave you because you're the only one I can go to for hope. And it's mending the relationship even when you don't have answers to the questions. In our loss and grief, we will lament, we will wonder, and we will question. And as we process our grief and loss, we will continue to wrestle with what we believe to be true about God and his role in our suffering. And eventually, eventually, over time and with intention, we will, we will walk out of our grief and loss into a new orientation and a new theology of suffering. The, the Bible also makes space for stories that do not resolve until Christ returns. And if we look at Psalm 77 with Asaph, it does not resolve. He is wrestling with God. And by the end of the Psalm, 
He does turn to reflect on God's goodness, but his situation doesn't change. The story of suffering lingers. The point is this. The Bible makes space for stories that do not resolve until Christ returns. So how can we best provide comfort to one another as we grieve? Well, sometimes it's not always natural to know how to respond to someone when they're grieving. Even if the grief completely mirrors an experience that we went through. To carry grief alongside each other is just not easy. To sit down in the dirt of somebody else's pain is messy. And I think we often overcomplicate it, and then we miss out on something very sacred. If there's anything that we have in, in common with other people, it's their suffering. It's this suffering. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we read, Comfort each other and give each other strength. Well, here's a few suggestions of how we might comfort one another. Be present. Sometimes your presence is all that's required. Being willing to sit quietly together, listening and acknowledging their pain. And we need to create safe spaces for grieving freely so that the griever may grieve in their own unique style and timing. And make no judgments on the one that is grieving. Additionally, we shouldn't have an agenda. God designed us to need each other. Some creatures can live isolated, but humans cannot. We need relationship. God did not create us to be alone. We need to be loved, and we need to love others. Our healing does come in community, and we need to be together. We need one another in life, and we need one another in suffering. Well, God also uses our pain to help others. We can handle an enormous amount of pain when we realize that there's purpose in it. And when you don't see any purpose in the pain, it's just so easy to give up. When all you see is your pain, as God pointed out to us in this video, when you lose sight, of, then you lose sight of God when all you see is your pain. And when the pain is unceasing and when it never stops, then we need to see God's purpose. Is he trying to bring good out of bad? Is he trying to get my attention? Is he preparing my character for heaven? Is he giving me an opportunity to grow in Christ's likeness? Well, when you're in pain, Who's the person that you're thinking of the most? You are, of course. It's human nature to be self-centered. When we're all suffering, and when, we, and when we're suffering, we want to be comforted. And when we're sick, we want to be cared for. So pain makes us self-centered. But God says, if you're going to learn to love like he does, you've got to try to see other people's pain, even when you're in pain. Well, Jesus is our greatest example of this. And when he was hanging on the cross, he was an enormous physical and spiritual and emotional pain. And he was carrying all the sin of the world. But in his dying moments, he noticed the pain of other people. He prayed, Father, forgive them that they don't know what they're doing. 
And he said to the one beside him, Today you will be with me in paradise. And he also made sure that his mother would be cared for. He wasn't thinking about himself even when he was in agony. And God's word says to, say, to have the same attitude as Jesus. And this means that when we're in pain, we should look around and see who else is in pain. And we should think of others as we care for ourselves. And this can be a difficult, difficult thing to do. And perhaps it's all part of timing too, because there are times when your pain is very, very raw and you're not ready for that, and I understand that. But with God's grace, we can look past our own pain. It's during those opportunities that God reveals to us that there's a purpose in our pain. And God uses our pain to help others. Who could better help someone who's gone through the pain of addiction or a marriage failure or a molestation or any other evil in the world than somebody who has experienced it themselves? God does not want you to waste your hurt. It is redemptive hurt. God wants us to redirect our focus. And in first, or 2 Corinthians 1.4, we read that God comforts us all in our trouble so that we can comfort others with the same comfort that we receive from God. And lastly, God gives us the hope of heaven. Well, no one is exempt from grief and its powerful reach, it will touch every one of us at some point. And outside of grief, we have a very real enemy that wants to manipulate the effects of grief to make temporary pain seem eternal. But we have hope. Now, people use the word hope a lot in our day-to-day -day language. We use the word casually. We say things like, I hope we can go on this trip, or I hope that it doesn't rain tomorrow. And we also use the word in, of hope in a more heartfelt way when saying things like, I hope that my friend recovers from her illness. Or I hope that my daughter gets help with her addiction. And as Christians, we're promised this hope of heaven. And I think it's actually difficult for a lot of people to wrap their head around this concept of heaven. Maybe heaven's too vague for most of us. It appears way too far off into the future. Well, there's many Bible verses about hope, but there are two that I'd like to share with you today. And the first is in Hebrews 6, verse 19. And it says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Get that Im imagery, an anchor for the soul. And the second verse is Matthew 19, 28, where G Peter says to Jesus, Here we are. We've just given up everything to follow you. What, what reward will there be for us? And Jesus responds saying, listen to the truth. In the age of the restoration of all things, that's the key piece here, the age of the restoration of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will have 12 thrones of your own. You will govern the 12 tribes of Israel. And for anyone who has left behind their home, their property, their family, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, for my sake, they will be repaid a hundred times over and will inherit, inherit eternal life. 
So Jesus mentions the, the new world. He's describing the moment when the Son of Man, Jesus, will take his seat on the glorious throne of heaven in eternity. Well, Revelation 21, 1-5 puts it this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And I love this part. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So just stop and think about that for a moment. Living in a world where there's no more crying, pain, loss, grief, or death. Wow. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. So to summarize, this is the unique hope of the Christian faith. The restoration of all things. The real hope that is the anchor of our soul is the hope that any day now, any day now, our loving Father and our Lord Jesus will usher in the renewal of all things. So let's remember, hope is the force that sustains us. May we know in our hearts today that hope heals us.